This is an ABC podcast. Natasha Mitchell joining you from Wurundjeri country here in Nam, Melbourne. Hey, this week on Science Friction, adult themes. If little ears are nearby, this is your heads up. Why do we have sex? Okay, for an evolutionary biologist like Rob Brooks, the answer is pretty obvious. He spent his entire career researching sex and the question of why it's so complicated. And that's something that goes back to the first organisms that ever figured out that there's quite a neat trick you can do of combining your genes with someone else's genes, with another individual's genes. But it also requires a great deal of cooperation because you're only halving the information. You're putting forward half of your information with someone else's information to create new combinations. Ultimate cooperative thing, ultimate creative thing to do, and hugely vulnerable to exploitation and cheating. Oh, so many questions to ask. From the recent Quantum Words Writers Festival in Perth, I'm talking writing sex with Professor Rob Brooks from the University of New South Wales. His books include Sex, Genes and Rock and Roll, How Evolution Shaped the Modern World. And out this year, his really insightful book, Artificial Intimacy, Virtual Friends, Digital Lovers and Algorithmic Matchmakers. Jennifer Mills is author of The Airways and her first novel, Dyschronia, was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin Award. As a queer writer, Jennifer's stunning speculative fiction navigates gender, bodies, sexuality and power. Josephine Taylor is author of the novel Eye of a Rook, which looks at the way women's sexuality and bodies have been controlled and misunderstood by society and by medicine. Her two main characters live with this disabling pain that few women get the right help for. It's a condition known as vulvodynia, which manifests as a chronic pain in the vulva, so the external genitals, and which can make sex and even sitting extremely painful. But first to this question of why we have sex, can it all be reduced to an evolutionary imperative? But a whole lot of sex is not about combining genes. An evolutionary biologist's thought on this might be, well, ultimately, is it, a, it is about combining genes, but really, that's not what's on our mind a lot of the time. Well, it begins with combining your genes. The definition of sex really is the combining of the genes part. The intercourse and relationships and intimacy are all devices built around, ultimately, <laughs> in, in the very, very long backstory, <laughs> built around this thing that our genes are quite good at doing, and it's not all necessarily to that end, because we've also invented a number of other uses for it, a number of other functions for it. Yeah, a very functional it. view, I know, it's very dry. Oh, well, I'm trying to think of a suitable metaphor, but um, I think I'd just get myself into trouble. But really, there's, there's um, a whole lot of other inventions, social inventions that proliferate from that beginning place. See, I want you to get into trouble uh, ah. today. So, um, uh, Jennifer, you were just nodding, shaking, grimacing. Why? <laughs> uh, I tend to disagree with evolutionary biology about the purposes of, of sex, mostly as a queer person who's been told they're unnatural for a mm. lot of their life. I just wrote an essay about this actually about queer natures and um, 
the way that these kind of ideologies of nature seek to sort of control our behaviour as human beings and police us. And I'm sure Rob's well aware of this, but like many hundreds of species that we've studied that exhibit homosexual behaviour that aren't, isn't necessarily for the purposes of social cohesion or other forms of reproduction, but also our ways of reproducing as a society aren't simply sexual genetic either. We reproduce through care. We reproduce through culture. We reproduce through storytelling. We reproduce ourselves. And so we've got lots of different things. And, you know, who's to say that genetics is the, is the most prominent or important one? Oh, that's so wonderful. Here we are reproducing right now. Yeah. It's a positive orgy. <laughs> <laughs> Rob, and, and yet there's conflict. Purely on the <laughs> well, there's sort of a certain pleasure in conflict, I think, oh, maybe yeah. we might talk about that. Josephine Taylor, what about you? What, do you? what delights you and what's difficult about writing about sex and mm. bodies and sexuality? Yeah. What I'm writing about is in Ivor Rookie's Vovidinia, which is chronic vulva pain. So it kind of affects reproduction and pleasure. And writing about it is um, difficult because you're talking about pain in that part of your body. But in Ivaruk, I really wanted to show that the women before they developed vulvodynia were actually quite passionate sexual beings to sort of undo this notion that, um, that this is a sexual disorder. Because I was really interested in the in the ways in which we think about sexuality and pain mm. as well. So yeah. Alice and Emily are your, are your two characters in Eye of the Rook, and they are separated in time and place, separated in time by 150 years. But their stories are remarkably they, they have powerful resonances with each other, don't they? What, what's happening in their bodies? Mm. And this is intensely personal for you too, because yeah. this also happened in your body. So this is based on sort of an investigative memoir and a PhD and then I use that as source material for I Have a Rook. Yes, what's going on in their bodies is that they are both in relationships, they're both like me, um, heterosexual, cisgender, so I kind of drew on my own experience for that. But I should note that this pain can be felt by anyone biology or gender or anything, it doesn't really matter. It's, as pain can be felt even in arms that have been amputated, for instance, mm-hmm. it can be felt anywhere. So pain is kind of wild like that. Mm-hmm. So these women are, are in very satisfying kinds of relationships and then they develop this pain out of the blue. And a shocking a, pain. A shocking An pain. An all-consuming pain. Yeah, yeah. And at one point the pain's so bad, and this was my experience too, I think at one point I'm, I'm writing... It's hard to tell, I say, inside, outside, mind, body, brain, because it's actually really hard to tell where the pain is. It's whether it's actually in you or out of you. But what's very interesting for this conversation is the way in which the the medical profession essentially blame the women for being hypersexual, oversexual, excessively sexual, that somehow they've brought the pain onto themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's two things, like the history. So I did a lot of research into the history of hysteria. So there were kind of two things. It's like the woman is either uh, not having sex, she's frigid, she's, she's autonomous, she's sexually autonomous outside of a marriage, or she's overly sexual. So the idea is basically that we need to contain the woman in a heterosexual 
marriage, having babies, and then everything is fine. No self-pleasuring, no, no masturbation. No, exactly. None it's all that. about the penis and, the, and having babies, basically. So it's very much sort of feeding into a society, you know, a patriarchal kind of society. And the ways in which the sexuality is seen is very, very bonded, very bounded. And um, when you don't fit into that, I mean, like, um, Alice, for instance, in the modern days has a term, the, the term vulvodynia, eventually, for what she's feeling. But all Emily had was hysteria, which was the catch-all phrase and, mm. and a way in which that um, bodies, any bodies, were viewed based on a male standard of anatomy and pleasure. And then any deviation from that was kind of seen as not not normal. Hurtling into the present day and, and then probably a little bit into the future, Rob Brooks, in your book, you're exploring what is changing about sexual intimacy as we occupy more and more virtual spaces, virtual intimacy. So what got you interested in this relationship between intimacy and technology and, and how it's changing? There were a lot of newspaper articles breathlessly declaring that the sex robots are coming. Get it? Okay, they all got the same pun. The sex robots were, were obviously, and they'll continue to be a, a story because people like to talk about sex and they like to sort of nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And these are a bit weird, you know, you would be a bit weird to use one of these, etc. And so I thought I'd have a look into that. And it became clear quite quickly that my guess is that they may be a plaything for several fairly, fairly niche types of sexual kind of fun. But the, the underlying artificial intelligence being touted in those um, technologies as something that will, you know, make it almost possible to have a relationship with this thing that you own was far more interesting. You have real concerns about the way in which corporate algorithms are tracking our every click, mm. but also what gives us kicks. What are your concerns about what's coming or what's already here? My concerns are really in the, more in the area of virtual friendship. So, so the narrow, probably slightly functional definition of intimacy that I tend to adopt is <laughs> the folding of the other into your sense of self. That's sort of how the psychologists like to think about it in the simplest possible way. You know, we, we're very quick to say, well, computers will never be able to do that. That's a very human thing. And no computer will ever be able to do anything like intimacy. And yet at the same time, what social media, you know, writ large, including things like YouTube, are doing is tapping into the psychological rules by which we groom each other in order to make those connections, in order to build intimacy by stepwise kind of self-disclosure to the point where you treat it like your friend and the time you spend being friends with TikTok or with Instagram is time you're not spending talking to, becoming closer to the humans in the your life. Full fleshly humans in your life. Yeah. Taking, because there's only so much attention you can pay to as, as many things really, isn't there? So, And there's only so many hours in the day and, and that's true of every technology you might imagine. The specific technologies are relatively irrelevant. They take up your time and they take up your headspace. We know that we are all primates, all animals are probably you know, their sociality is constrained by how much headspace they have for remembering who owes what to whom, whose connections are whose, etc. And that space in our heads is also being used up. And so slowly our social lives are becoming more impoverished. 
impoverished. So that's your ultimate concern. Because there are great benefits for our sex lives and for intimacy of living and occupying virtual spaces. It's allowed people to find their tribes. It's allowed them to transcend all the expectations and binaries that have been imposed on us around sexuality. Yes, and not only are you able to find your tribe, but your tribe is able to find you. The better algorithms get at helping people to find out more about who they are in any dimension, you know, that's a huge benefit. I'm I'm certainly not a techno-pessimist. I don't think that we're all going to hell in a handbasket. I think that there's some incredibly clever things being invented. I think the the prospect of virtual sex, whereby you're having some kind of a cross-continental or just with somebody next door, some form of intimacy... It can be incredibly safe. You can step out of a scene that you don't like and you can match with people who are a good match to you from anywhere in the world. Yeah, I mean, it's got many benefits, doesn't it? I mean, for a start, you don't have to deal with anyone's arms and legs and where to put things and, oh, my God, all that stuff. It's virtual, it's clean, it's tidy. You don't even (laughs) have to have two arms, two legs or a particular configuration of genitals necessarily. This is virtual reality types of of setups in which you might drop into a scene with virtual or sort of simulated other humans. Genuinely uh, liberating. Yeah. Or you yourself might drop in as someone other than who you are physically. Jennifer, does it sound genuinely liberating to you? Yeah, to some degree, that it's very exciting, the technological possibilities of being able to escape the physical form and also your location in space, because we are socially very limited by the people that are around us. No offence, everyone. <laughs> um, but I think, I think it's very interesting that we sort of look at, we look at the way that technology, we're using technology to police each other's identities and behaviours and sexualities, but actually we've always done that work of policing each other's identities and sexualities and behaviours. We've outsourced it to other institutions like the Catholic Church or school environments, for example, can be great places for this kind of serious social education in what's okay and what's not. And that can be very positive when you're teaching kids proper things about consent and ethics and very dangerous when you're not. So I think, you know, being able to outsource some of that mental load to technology is actually quite useful and maybe it will free up some of that space for other, other social paradigms and other ways of thinking about how we live and work together. The idea of escaping the physical body was something that I think really underpinned the writing of the airways my most recent book it sort of revolves around two main characters one is a guy named Adam and the other is a person named Yun who is non-binary and they're murdered on the first page of the book it's not a spoiler and they become something else another kind of being that is not beholden to the body in the same way Um, so they still require bodies to live, but they are able to inhabit other bodies very briefly at first. And for me, it was a way of sort of writing about queer survival in the world. Um, It was kind of a fantasy of being able to escape your physical form. Tell us about writing Yun and what you were expressing there, that Yun occupies, kind of moves as a ghost through different living bodies and, and, and kind of morphs into their shape and their form and then out again. 
What was that about for you? Yeah, well, part of it was a very horror kind of idea, like ghosts haunting Lubbock, but also uh, this very kind of, I guess, Freudian idea of the uncanniness of the body and the self and the way that we kind of absorb other people's identities into our own with intimate relationships. And, you know, Freud talks about haunting as the way that grief kind of becomes part of the grief, the person that you're grieving becomes a part of you. So I was very interested in all of those dynamics. But there was also just this pure queer fantasy of being able to escape your physical form. Like I was very excited about the idea of what that would make possible. It's something that I I noticed after I was writing the book. I noticed how this kind of fantasy of disembodiment is very present in a lot of queer literature and science fiction um, and queer music as well. So the trans artist Sophie has a song, Immaterial Girl, which is a total like fantasy of being able to transcend the body. Um, June Jones from Melbourne, she um, has a lyric that is like, why can't I just be wind, Wi-Fi or sound that I've always really (laughs) related to. You know, I've always had the kind of relationship with my body where I'm just like, well, why, why can't I just be uploaded to the cloud, you know? Like, I'm, I'm going to be the first person who does that. And my partner's like, no way, don't do it. <laughs> why is that feeling a good one? Why is it a liberating one? I think it's partly because of the presence of all of this kind of cultural policing that we live with. And you don't sort of realise how much work and pressure it is to conform or hide within these kind of dynamics. And they're things that might feel very natural to cisgendered heterosexuals um, who are told that they're the things that align with what feels natural to them are natural. And so, you know, yes, sex is reproductive, marriage is normal. And so when you sort of not, when you don't fit easily into those structures, then those structures become very visible and interesting very quickly. <laughs> Adam is essentially a sexual predator in The Airways, your book. He watches Yun, he watches, he fetishises women's underwear. He, it doesn't seem to me that he has any kind of authentic relationship with women and non-binary people. It's, it's all at a distance. It's kind of virtual. It's a virtual kind of intimacy. It's weird. And I, I well, weird in, I've used that word carefully, but what was it like writing into Adam? I think I complained about halfway through the book on Twitter that like I was stuck with this quite helpless dickhead and I was like, is this what it's like to have a boyfriend, you guys? (laughs) But I found his annoyingness quite interesting as well and I I kind of found it a little cathartic to write about this kind of failing upward masculinity of, um, you know, everyone around him enables him to be who he is. He's not doing it by himself. Nobody holds him accountable for his behaviour. Well, he doesn't even hold himself accountable. He's in total denial. I'm a good man. I've done nothing wrong. He excuses it because he's had a difficult childhood where his father died and his mother didn't really facilitate his grief. And there's all the other reasons for why he's being a sexual predator. But I was also very... um careful to not be too judgmental of him as well. And um, mm. I did have quite a lot of empathy for him. I didn't want to write a perpetrator victim story because that wasn't interesting to me. So Adam and Yun haunt each other. They're in a sort of, I guess, a twin orbit in a way. Josephine, let's re-enter the body. <laughs> what was Dr Baker 
doing to women's bodies. He's a character in your book, but he's a real person in history too. What did he do to women's bodies? Yeah, really terrible things. So his name was Isaac Baker Brown and he was a surgeon in Victorian London. He started using experimental kinds of procedures on women. So he saw if a woman presented with any kind of problems, they would be pretty well immediately categorised as hysteria. And he saw hysteria as a downward sort of tiered disintegration where the ultimate end point was death. That was kind of, if you didn't interrupt this kind of progression. So he actually was performing clitoridectomies to uh, stop this this progression because the idea was, and it wasn't an uncommon idea at the time, that it was self-pleasure. So he talked about peripheral irritation of the nerve, which was basically masturbation. So in order to, so the self-pleasuring was overexciting the nerve. And so we had to get rid of the exciting cause and then restrain the woman afterwards, um, sometimes with um, straitjacket, to prevent her from starting again. And as you can imagine, I was horrified when I found this book with each case, there's case after case after case, and you don't really hear the women at all. At one point, the woman, we have her reported, you know, that you will unsex me or that whatever it might be, or that I lost my baby, you know, kind of trying to say, look, you know, I'm kind of unhinged by grief or whatever it might be. I was fascinated by his research, but I didn't want to make him a central character because I thought, no, this is, you know, he had a lot of power. He did have a massive fall from grace. And that's Interesting, isn't it? So yeah. he, he he was celebrated and... He was celebrated and fated, but not for massive amount of time. Um, the surgeons, in a way, quite liked um, surgeons being bold and audacious, but he got a little bit too bold and audacious. And he also self-advertised and promoted himself. He was kind of really pushing against the boundaries of a very paternalistic structure, mm-hmm. which is, you know, we uh, women are precious and so on, but we need to protect them from themselves kind of thing. And so we don't really want to give them this dirty kind of information and it's not good for them and so on. And he was being too open and overt. So he had a brief sort of meteoric kind of rise and um, and then he had a very swift fall. His legacy lives on and this is what you explore in your character, Alice. You know, she's encountering the same sort of judgment from doctors and gynaecologists about why she's experiencing this pain and all sorts of uh, commentary about her sex life. And But it's interesting, in, in your book, she is quite liberated and empowered by understanding this history. She finds solace in it in a way, and I wonder whether you did the same. Well, I was trying to do with having these two interweaving threads that um, to show what had changed and what hadn't changed. And we've become more, we're able to articulate, we're able to talk about sex and vulvas and all sorts now, but she's still encountering those judgments. She joins a support group where women are encountering these kinds of dismissive attitudes of get a hobby, have a holiday, um, drink to relax before, so, you know, whatever it might be. All she sorts just needs of, a good route. She just needs a good, that's right, that exactly, was one of them. And these are actually drawn from real life scenario. These are, I, I'm not making these up. I've had contact with a oh, lot no, of people. Oh, no, I believe you. Because yeah. <laughs> I know you've had, you've had talk, talked with um, women with, with vulvodynia too. So I know that you know this is what we encounter. Because she can't, she's not offered a coherent story about her pain. She's not offered something. I mean, vulvodynia just means 
is vulvar pain. So it's not really a diagnosis, it's just a descriptor. So really it's up to her to try to make sense of it. You know, the, the relationship that she's in is starts struggling, but it's not because of the vulvodynia per se, it's because of who she starts becoming because of what she's forced to become, which is actually, I think that, you know, this whole thing of that when you have that level of suffering and pain, you kind of buckle under and you might buckle under and, and re-emerge or you, you kind of, in the end, you have to do something with it or stay buckled under. And so she does something with it. Rob Brooks, in, in your book, Artificial Intimacy, you explore the ways in which, you know, if we continue to sort of turn to the virtual to find satisfaction or intimacy or companionship, relationship, friendship, what happens to our flesh and bone existence? There are some real concerns there. I mean, you, you describe the incel community, don't you? Remind people of what those lads are and what consequences their existence is having. So the, the incel is a portmanteau of involuntary and celibate and it wasn't always just a, a heterosexually oriented men thing but a particularly vocal, active set of subcultures because they're not really one thing no. has taken this over and, and proliferated on that sort of dark part of the internet called the manosphere. These are usually young men who find that their sex, sex lives are unsatisfactory and their view is that they will always be unsatisfactory for a number of reasons. One of which is that what we refer to as hypergyny, which is women like and form relationships with and have sex with successful, attractive men. So you can see that at the, at the very root of their worry is the notion that, you know, women have any agency at all in deciding who they have sex with and have relationships with. And there are some fairly lost people there who simply need to do a bit of growing up and maybe a bit of getting older. And then there are some deeply misogynist, reactionary, unsympathetic characters there who prescribe things like sexual redistribution, the rolling back of sexual redistribution, basically, you know, the government should, should you know, give us wives, they should be married to us forever, there should be no no-fault no divorce and we can roll back the entire sexual revolution and all of those waves of feminism and all of, you know, very good things, uh, but we should roll them back because there's a small subset of men who are very sad about their sex lives. And I'm sorry, I'm being a little bit sarcastic about them because they just deserve it. <laughs> they are pathetic, but at the same time, they are suffering in their own way. But um, they're emblematic in a way. I mean, I, I, I bring them up because it, it's part of a bigger discussion you have about the consequences of this sort of virtual relation. Yeah, so, so the question is, there's a fairly strong case to be made for the fact that technology might solve our incel problem. Now, let me just say, with the incel problem, it's not a new problem. It's not some sort of toxic consequence of late-stage capitalism. It's something that's always been with us. It just ha so happens that societies that had a surplus of young men without direction who were angry tended to go to war with other societies. And so, you know, you had an imbalance would kind of... Are you suggesting that we kill a percentage of <laughs> young men to avoid them becoming sinister, it's just, patriarchal, conspiracy hey, theorists? It's just not viable, is it, you know? <laughs> 
Napoleon used to boast that he would go through 30,000 men a month. You'd use 30,000 men a month. And, you know, America in the, uh, their Afghanistan campaign lost something like 2,500 mm. people over 20 years. So it's no longer this, you know, byproduct. But it's certainly uh, one of the other things that the Europeans at least would do with this is send people off on colonial missions and they'd either flourish or not come back at all. But, you know, other societies have a similar kind of situation. The recruiting method for Boko Haram and for ISIS is exactly the same. You appeal to young men who have no purchase in a mating market that's often biased, stuck against them with things like bride price where they can never earn enough money to take that place in their society that comes with this. So we've got this surplus of angry young men and some people say technology will solve the problem. Partly created the problem but might solve the problem. Some people How? will say pornography's created the problem but there's a very, very good argument to be made for the fact that Pornography, for all of the, the bad parts of pornography that we talk about quite often, has probably distracted a lot of these young men from their lack of real-world success and is at least keeping them occupied. Like a um, pressure valve. <laughs> like a, yeah. I mean, would sex bots fix the problem or would it concentrate, exacerbate the problem? Well, because know, then they really don't know how to relate to real people. They're only relating to robots. And sex is on demand and they can request any kind of sex. There's no consent required. There's no discourse required. There's no relational thing going on. It's just a bot with a hole in it. It depends on... It, it depends on... <laughs> I won't qualify that. <laughs> um, <laughs> It depends on the business model, really, doesn't it? Because if you've got to be rich to afford one of these things, then you've got to get a job, which means that you need to get out of the basement, etc., and go and get a job, which would kind of solve the first problem to some extent at least, in that you would go out and meet other people and you know, start making your way in the world. If the business model was one of sort of where, like Facebook is now, where you know, if you're not the customer, then you're the product. Well, I'm really concerned about that business model. So... Yeah, I'm, I'm not, I don't know that, it's gonna, that sex bots will solve the problem. Maybe virtual reality sex will. Maybe a, an, a super kind of porn might do that. Um, but then again, we're going to want, you know, people like us are going to want to regulate what that is. And we're going to want to teach, teach them how to be whatever it is that we want them to be, which sounds good when you start with that, but then you're stuck with policing people and telling them who they are. We've got a couple of minutes for questions and I think we've got a microphone here. Um, so pop your hand up if you've got a question. Go for it. There's one over there. So I'm going to be going into doing um, education at university soon and uh, my minor will be in physical education and I'm also interested in doing a side bit of health. I would just like to know, maybe not in terms of so much policing, but what you guys would like to see more of taught in schools or in the sexual education sphere? This is such a good question because mm. I remember doing a forum with a bunch of teenagers and who were really empowered around these issues and they were just shocked that they were still learning the mechanics of sex and nothing really more subtle beyond yeah. basic mm. consent conversation, but nothing about pleasure. And these were 15 and 16 year olds, nothing about pleasure and satisfaction and, you know, all those questions around sexual agency. So I was fascinated by that. Josephine. Mm. Then, yeah. yeah, I was just going to say that the, the highest um, 
rate of uh, incidence uh, onset in uh, vulvodynia is uh, 18 to 25. And so I think if you don't know if you're uh, at an age where you're upper secondary school um, going beyond that and you develop that kind of pain and you're in a situation where you're trying to meet people, form intimate relationships and you have no idea what's wrong with you and you go to see medical practitioners who don't know what's wrong with you or give you um, advice that's incorrect or send you to somebody who's dismissive or whatever. Obviously, that's a terrible thing. So I would love to see more um, more broader discussions around the different forms of sexuality and um, pain and um, the kinds of things that, that it's not a personal thing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that it's actually not to do with whoever you're partnering with. It's not their problem. So to take that level, I think that young people who are discovering sexuality already have so much that they have to kind of take on board that they really don't need to have to deal with the feelings of other people, you know, in response to, say, for instance, with vulvodynia, how to deal with that pain. So, yeah, I'd really like there to be more on that. I just want to add that I think we start too old and Mm. we need to be teaching really young children about gender diversity, um, autonomy, bodily autonomy, the ethics and boundaries and how to communicate clearly about the body and their desires. And that's like, that is improving definitely, but I think we still live with this illusion that sexuality starts at puberty and because obviously there's a lot of risk around the sexualization of children in society and we need to protect them, but we don't protect them by making them ignorant of the issues. Mm. But also how do we help young people develop a language around desire? How how do we allow them to sort of go, well, what does desire mean and look like and kind of give words to that? Because that's never talked about in relation to young people because it's taboo. But that's an important conversation, isn't it? Because then it means that you might actually get something that starts to differentiate um, what an adult desire is placed upon a child, Mm. you know, so when Mm. it starts to get taught at an early age, you start to undo some of those kinds of things that are placed upon children as well. Uh, Rob, any thoughts from you? One thing that would really help, and I don't know how to do this, is to have people recognise when they're policing other people's sexuality, sexual activity, etc. I mean, I think that in, in early high school, the stuff that kids say to each other and the ways in which they interact with each other is brutal, having had kids go through that and to, to recognise what it is, but to recognise more broadly what its consequences are. And I don't know that even... Adults, even theorists of this kind of stuff, have have good language for that at the moment. No, the weaponising of sexuality and sex, and you know, in those early years, is so cruel. Um, I mean, how do you even find your own skin in all that? I guess. Any final comments or reflections from you? Just thank you. It's been a really fun conversation. It's been really great to chat with all three of you <laughs> about these issues. And I don't think anyone's going to solve it all mm-hmm. in our lifetimes. You know, this is an endless conversation. No, as long as we ever exist on this planet, I think we'll be <laughs> having these conversations. Um, Please thank Jennifer, Rob and Josephine. Jennifer Mills' most recent novel is The Airways. Rob Brooks is author of Artificial Intimacy, Virtual Friends, Digital Lovers and Algorithmic Matchmakers. And Josephine Taylor's novel is called 
eye of a rook. You can find me on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell. Big thanks to the Quantum Words Festival team and to sound engineers Dave LeMay and Ariel Gross. Tell your mates about the Science Friction podcast and uh, you can follow us on the ABC Listen app. I'll catch you next time. Bye.